0: From the autumnal studios of pbs 39 at the ppnl public media center in the christmas city of bethlehem pa it's time for another egg laying hour of chemical free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden i'm your host mike mcgrath the question is not whether you had tomato troubles this summer the question is how bad were they and so on today's show we'll discuss split skins and poor returns and remind you that you are lucky that your blight was not plus tips tricks and interesting ideas about how to make a flock of chickens feel like part of the family and your fabulous phone call questions comments tips tricks suggestions and electrifyingly erudite elucidations so grab a little pink sock cats and kittens because it starts right here right now all right welcome to another thrilling episode of you bet your garden From PBS39, WLVT, in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little bit later in the show, we will tell you why your tomatoes were terrible this past summer. And we will talk with Lisa Steele, author of a delightful new book about keeping chickens in your backyard. If you're thinking about chickens or not chickens, you won't want to miss it and you won't it's coming up after a couple of your fabulous phone calls at 1 833 PBSWLVT which translates to 833 727 9588 billy welcome to you bet your garden
1: and thank you very much
0: hey thank you bill how are you doing man well i do well and where does bill do well i'm in Marshall, texas oh okay so you're in the, the you're in the unusually humid portion of texas
1: and we are extremely humid at the moment
0: yeah yeah because people think all of texas is dry but texas covers something like three or four usda growing zones you have and we are in i'm in uh in zone 8a okay so oh man so when it's humid it is humid what can we do for you man
1: i have a question about asparagus oh okay i've been growing asparagus uh Oh, 10 years or so, and it's in a raised bed mm-hmm. and, and doing quite well. My question is, do you prune it, and if so, when?
0: Well, you are an exception, uh, my friend. You realize that most people would tell you it's difficult or impossible to grow good asparagus in your growing zone.
1: Well, I seem to be doing the other part of it, then. It's, it's growing very, very well and has for many, many years.
0: And um, there were uh, there have been a number of studies to help people in warm climates, you know, because asparagus typically needs a very cold winter to rest. And mm-hmm. you know, restore its vigor. Uh, but the University of uh, Southern California has been doing work with improved varieties for hot weather climates that don't need as long a dormancy. Uh, what kind of asparagus are you growing? Uh, did you get anything special for warm weather, or, or you just have a, a very green thumb? It's very washed. Oh, okay. So that's one of the old original heirloom varieties. You know, maybe that would be stronger in your climate. So, the basic answer for all asparagus growers, is as you know the the spears come up in the spring Now, I, I feel like I'm carrying coals to Newcastle to give you advice. I think you should be sitting in the chair right now <laughs> um, <love> to. <laughs> but in the <laughs> in the in, in the warmer climates, you want to pick your asparagus as early as possible, and I'm presuming you snap it off rather than harvest with a knife correct. Yeah, because harvesting with a knife, uh, you get too much of that stalk at the bottom that nobody eats anyway, and it can interfere with the health of the crowns underneath. So, yeah, harvest them small, harvest them young, um, but when the new shoots, um, the new spears come up smaller than a pencil, that's when you're supposed to um, let it go. And those last runs will produce the ferns, and then the ferns, of course, collect the solar energy that kind of rejuvenates the, um, the crowns, the roots underneath. And this is also right. the time when you feed it, right?
1: I feed it. Uh, my, I make my own mulch out of shredded leaves.
0: Okay, my Excellent. Leaves. And so that's a gentle feeding, and I bet it helps with the weeds too. Weeds are the biggest enemy of asparagus. So in warm climates, uh, the rule is to leave those fern-like stalks standing as long as possible, because if you if you cut them down, you kind of mulch the soil, and that keeps the soil at a warmer temperature. You want your soil to get as cool as possible. Uh, because you still do have a dormant season. It does rest over winter, even though your your picking season is much longer than other people. Ideally, you want to cut those stalks down, but let them lay on the surface of the soil about three weeks to a month before you would expect the first spears to come up.
1: Well, that is a very good idea. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Bill. Good luck, man.
1: Hey, thank you very much, and good luck with you.
0: Okay. Good. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. One. 833-PBS-WLVT. In numeric terms, that's 833-727-9588. Paul, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I am just ducky, Paul. Thank you for asking. How are you doing, man?
2: Oh, I'm not, I'm doing okay, but I have a tale of rose rosette woe in
0: my garden. Boy, that is disease that virus is growing it's rampant around the country i just got back from a wonderful time in north carolina giving a talk for a hospital who has uh, both a healing garden and a hospice uh, garden for their patients and the hospice garden was meant to be kind of an all rose garden and it's all rose rosette it's all the roses with this disfiguring virus that, you know, if you look at at the rosette itself, the weird kind of cane-like structure that branches off these roses, if you isolate it, it's quite beautiful. We picked a whole bunch of them and put them, you know, arranged them in in like a jar with marbles and water, and they looked amazing. People didn't know what it was. They thought it was some desert plant, but this virus is... um, afflicting roses all over the country. How many roses do you have, and do you know anything about the varieties?
2: Yeah, the one that's really afflicted, or the one that I'm trying to say, is, um, it's an old Jackson Perkins variety called the Farmer's Wife, and that rose has been in that yard probably for 40 years maybe, on the, based on the size of the base, at mm-hmm. least for that or longer. And it's about, you know, it was initially about six feet tall and about 20 feet tall. 25 feet long, I had taken a cutting of that and put it in, uh, um, rooted it, and started another one, and both of those were uh, really severely afflicted. Um, the one in the cutting is already dead, and the other one um, is, uh, I've been trying to rescue it by one the roses, that uh, witch's broom appears, cutting the cane as far back as I dare Right. to try, to try and isolate that. And so I I was, it's been failing, um, and so I'm afraid I'm going to lose that variety. It's not, you know, it's not in production anymore, I guess. And I have one of the questions I had is, does is it known if that virus, I know it runs down the cane to the root and kills, basically, that's how it spreads. But does it uh, go distally? Does it go back up the healthy cane? So it doesn't have to transfer laterally. So if I wanted to start a cutting from a cane, say, on the other side of the plant, would that be okay, or am I really risking it, or is it already infected and dead?
0: You know, in um, in truth, nobody knows. When this first became really prevalent a few years ago, people thought it was limited to the knockout rows, um, which had been over-planted. And any time you get that kind of... Uh, um a one-way planting system with just too many of the same plants bad things tend to happen um but now we're seeing it on a bunch i will tell you there is hope i have uh, a flower carpet rose a french landscape rose that at first Mm -hmm. i stupidly thought it had cross-pollinated with some of my cane fruits with some of my raspberries and wine berries because Um. the it, it is a cane-like structure that comes off the top of, of the rose plant. And at first I thought this was cool. I'm going to have a rose that's going to give me raspberries, you know, because they're in the same family. And, of course, then I later found out that I was letting a virus uh, inoculate all my other roses. So as soon as I realized this was a bad thing, I went out and pruned all that stuff off, just totally ignoring what time of year it was. All rules are off when you got something like that that you're fighting. And the next year the rose grew out. It was probably August before I started to see the deformed canes at the top. So I cut it back hard and boom, that was it. Now that rose is perfectly normal. Every once in a while, every couple of years, it'll, it'll try to get a little, uh, a little uh, rosette cane out, and I just clip okay. it off as soon as I see it. Um, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with the same antiviral tactics that we use in people. The stronger the immune system of the rose, the more you can weaken the virus itself. Now, let me ask you the basic planting questions. Are your, yep. are your roses mulched?
2: They are mulched with leaf mulch. Okay. So I, I, I do my own leaf mulch and spread that around. Okay. And then I use in the spring and maybe in midsummer some uh, uh, Roses Alive, if you're familiar with the product, or Rose Tone.
0: Oh, okay. Called, uh, Roses Alive would be from Gardens Alive, and Rose Tone yeah. would be from Espoma. They're both premier yeah. suppliers of uh, organic and natural plant foods. Uh, one thing I want you to do is, although the leaf mulch is great, use that on your vegetable garden or your shrubs or something like that and let some of your shredded leaves cook down until they become pure black compost. And mm-hmm. th- and that's what I want under that rose. Compost has all these disease fighting properties. Now this is a virus and not a typical plant disease, but I think we want to throw every positive thing we can at it. Um, to answer your question directly, as you know, roses are, are very easy to propagate. So what I would do is, you know, get rid of his, get rid of all the virus uh, areas that are visible right now, even though this is not the correct time to prune plants, we're gonna do it anyway. So, you know, I want that as limited out of there as much as possible over the winter. And then in the spring, when new growth appears, I want you to look for the healthiest new growth, the canes that look the best. I want you to clip them off, immediately drop them into lukewarm water, bring them inside, Get a whole bunch of medium-sized pots with good drainage and excellent potting soil, nothing with chemicals in it. If you're you're getting from Gardens Alive and Espoma, uh, you you won't have anything bad in your potting soil, your seed-starting mix. So fill these pots up with nothing but seed-starting mix, potting soil, soil soil-free mix, whatever you want to call it. And then use a pencil to go... Excuse me. Use a pencil to push into the soil. Don't push it in with the cane. Make a hole with a pencil, drop the cane into it, fill the soil around the side. Maybe do two or three canes a pot if they're good size. Maybe just one cane a pot, but I want you to take 12 to 20 cuttings. And then so You
2: don't need you don't need the tip of the cane per se. You can take cuttings along the cane as well.
0: Um, you want the tip. You want the you tip want the unless tip. unless it is formed of flower. And then you can okay. still do it, but you have to cut the flower off. Okay. So, yeah, the, you, the, don't, the other? you don't want two openings. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to saturate those pots with water. Sit them in a sink for an hour or so, maybe two hours, until they get really heavy then put them in a place with dappled light, not direct sun, and hang a plastic bag on a hanger over top of each one to keep the humidity high. Mist those cuttings every morning. You wanna see water droplets on the inside of the bag. And then when you see new growth, take the bag off, put the plants outside in medium sun, put an inch or two of compost on top of the pot and then watch to see which ones are the healthiest. And then I would also suggest you plant them as far away from uh, the farmer's wife that you have that's infected. Try to take them to another part of the landscape. Even if it's only temporary, um, get them into a spot where they're not gonna be near the mother plant and watch them carefully. And with the mother plant, I, I think the answer is endless pruning. You know these roses are very healthy, um, oh, they yeah. grow very aggressively. You can cut them back over and over again. It's not going to harm the root system of the plant. But if you keep attacking this virus, if you keep feeding the plant with compost, I, you will have done everything a human can do to fight back.
2: If the area is, if it's, it's, it's like the rose that has died back, or is essentially dead. To dig that out now. That is there a time frame not to plant another rose there? Is the soil contaminated, and how long would that
0: take to clear? Oh, I would plant something completely different there after you get that okay. rose out. Yeah, there's no. See, you you want you want as many good cards in your hand as possible. You don't want to accidentally propagate the virus instead of roses. Sounds good. All right, but uh, take my advice. Take my example. I believe there is hope, but you got to be on it, and you got to be cutting these uh, damaged parts off as soon as they appear.
2: And it doesn't matter what time of your year. I, I could cut no that any part other t- part right now.
0: Any other plant, I would say, do not prune it at this time of year. Allow it to go dormant. But we're in the emergency room now. We we don't have time for that. Okay, sounds good. All right, Thanks good so luck, much. Paul. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it. It's an important subject. It's affecting a lot of people. Um, Unfortunately, thousands of people are going to go outside now and realize, oh, my God, that's what's happening to my rose. So it's vital information.
1: Okay,
0: great. All right. Good luck to you. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS39 in the beautiful Christmas City of Bethlehem, PA. Coming up later in the show, more of your fabulous phone calls and... We will discuss why you had such a terrible tomato harvest this past summer. Yes, almost all of you did. I did great, but then I'm supposed to. Anyway, it is time to welcome our special guest in this middle segment, Lisa Steele, author of the new book, 101 Chicken Keeping Hacks from Fresh Eggs Daily tips, tricks, and ideas for you and your hens, your lovely hens, aren't those beautiful birds? And it is new from what I would say Voyager Press, but it's spelled really funny. So is it, Lisa, is it Voyager?
3: Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I say Voyager, but you're right. There's an extra little U in there that I'm not sure what to do with.
0: Yeah, well, I think we're supposed to be classier uh, than just Voyager. I think we're supposed to throw a little French onto that. <laughs> well, we can do that. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I've been enjoying your book. You know, that it's almost down to the question among um organic gardeners. Uh, chickens or no chickens? Uh, chickens are, are really hot right now, and it's been a trend that hasn't diminished. Um, what, what do you attribute that to, to begin with?
3: Well, I think that it's the whole thing of knowing what you're eating, being comfortable, that what you're eating is eating healthy. And, I mean, there's nothing like going into your backyard and collecting eggs right from your chicken coop. You know, they're just fresher, and I think that's what hooks people initially is the eggs. But then once you get to know the chickens, and they really do become pets, and you name them, and now you've got this little flock of of really friendly, adorable chickens in your backyard. So I just think there's a lot of appeal in that sense, but... um, The whole thing about eating healthy and and all that is just such a big trend right now.
0: I get a feeling that we're not eating these hens, however.
3: No, we're just eating their eggs. That's right.
0: And so throw us some names. Uh, Which which, which are your favorite children out there in your backyard?
3: Oh, Violet. Violet definitely is is the flock favorite. Um, She's 11 to Orpington. But I have Abigail and... Uh, Charlotte and I, I tend to go for people names, you know, because they're <laughs> they're kind of like little people, little little ladies with their personalities. Uh, but I have Ginger, and I mean, just I think I have 18 chickens now and 12 ducks. So well,
0: <clears throat> if you have Ginger, you have to have Mary Ann to balance things right? out.
3: <laughs> and I don't actually. I guess I should.
0: Now you come from a long line of chicken farmers, raisers, people who have flocks around, um, but you seem mostly influenced by your grandparents. You used a different word in terms of uh, the way they ran their little farm. I'm going to call them junkies.
3: <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, that was the generation. They, they did have a chicken farm. That's how they supported their family. They had a diner, and they um, raised the meat and the eggs for the diner. From their their chicken flock, so it really was a business for them. But you know, they they were that generation where you didn't throw things away; you fixed things.
0: And we have to be. We're out of places to throw stuff away. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't any more room for that, so we got to reuse it again, <laughs> and then we get to throw it away. So you say you've got a, a, about uh, eighteen hens and a bunch of ducks. Do you have any roosters? You know, because that's once people get check uh, get chickens or get serious about chickens. That's the next thing, rooster or no rooster.
3: I do right now. We hatched one that was supposed to be a hen, and he ended up being a rooster. He's a bantam, so he's really small. He's only about the size of maybe a softball, and they're great until they hit this point where they decide that they hate you. and (laughs) um, So that's usually the point where they find a new home with someone else. But we're going to try a little Sherman because he's very small, and I think he might be okay.
0: Sherman, huh?
3: Sherman, yeah. I
0: like that. I like that. Now, um, I will tell you uh, my favorite chicken story. Is I was visiting a nearby farm, my my best farmer friends, the DeVaults, They have a farm called uh, God. no I can't uh, Pheasant Run, Pheasant Hill, and uh, they had chickens, and they were in um, an outdoor run with you know uh, netting over top, because we have a lot of red-tailed hawks where I live. While I'm sitting there in the driveway talking to my friends, a red-tailed hawk plummets down out of the sky, rips through this covering, and runs after the chickens, and out comes the rooster, and the most amazing fight ensued, and George and I actually had to go in there and save the red-tailed hawk. Who tried, to, oh, no. oh. who tried to turn tail, but couldn't get, it's, it's easy, sometimes it's easy to get in, but it ain't easy to get out. And, right. you know, that, I was impressed with the ferocity of a rooster.
3: That's crazy. Yeah, even as small as Sherman is when the chickens are out roaming, he tends to keep an eye on the sky because we have the red tail hawks, too, here in Maine. And, you know, if he sees a hawk, he'll make his little screechy sound and all the chickens run for cover. And he stands there, you know, with his chest out, like all tough. And, I mean, he weighs all of, what, 14 ounces or something? <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's ready to do battle. I mean, fortunately, I has not come to that because I can run in and scoop him up. But um, I think he would definitely give it a good shot. <laughs>
0: now be honest what how much time is involved with taking really good care of a flock this is not something like having a cat around the house who could care little about anything as long as they get fed and they have uh, your fresh laundry to sleep on there's a lot of responsibility (laughs) with having chickens
3: well, I, you know, I was just—I t- was at a fair this past weekend signing books, and I was talking to a lot of people who didn't have chickens, and they were asking that same question. And I would put chickens somewhere in between cats and dogs. I mean, dogs are super high-maintenance. You have to feed them. You need to let them sleep in your bed. You have to play Frisbee with them. They want your attention all the time. And then, right, the other end of the spectrum is the cat where might show up for dinner yeah. to, to sleep on your laundry. Um, but chickens kind of fall somewhere in the middle because once you have the whole system set up, you can actually put food out for them for, say, a week. They won't overeat. So you can fill up a big feeder, fill up a big waterer. And as long as they're in a secure pen, I mean, you really could go away for the weekend, and they would—they put themselves to bed at night. You can get an automatic door, so you know if you set it up right, chickens can be very low maintenance. But that initial setup can be a little bit costly and, and involved. But on a day-to-day, um, ten minutes—if I have to—but the reality is, I spend way more time with them than I need to, just because I enjoy it.
0: Oh, you are obviously a doting mother here i've been through the book and it's hilarious children don't have as many toys as your chickens do you're so worried about them getting bored you you hide food inside like plastic containers it's almost like keeping the primates active at the zoo you hide food around you you know it's almost like you make little movies that they can watch in the corner of their coop
3: well, it is true, and it is important. I mean, I do – I have a very short attention span, so I tend to get bored easily, and I think I put that on all of our animals. I always worry that everyone is entertained. And, but with chickens, if they get bored, it really can lead to bad things. I mean, they can start pecking at each other, pulling out feathers, you know, to the point where they'll actually kill one of the flockmates mates if, you know, if it comes to that. So I they really do need a lot of space. They need a lot of enrichment, a lot of toys. Uh, maybe not to the extent that, that I do, but I'm I'm just trying to give people suggestions. You know, they don't have to do everything I do
0: necessarily. Well, I have a feeling that you're as amused by some of these things as your chickens are. What's your what's your favorite chicken toy?
3: Oh, well well not really a toy, but the choo Until you have seen a chicken running across the lawn in a pink choo choo, you really <laughs> have to <live> your life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, so every day is every day is Halloween at the Fresh Eggs Daily Farm, huh?
3: Well, I have to believe that a hawk, you know, just kind of flying by, checking things out. I think they might stop and think twice before swooping down on a chicken and shoot you. I think it might just throw them off just that much that you know the chickens can just graze safely. I don't know.
0: Or they they might wonder if they missed the opening of the show. <laughs> Now, you make, you make your own chicken feed. Um, you tell people in the book that commercial chicken feed is fine, but you like to mix your own. Now, is this money-saving, or you're just controlling all these aspects of chicken nutrition that would surprise most people some of the foods they need to, to stay healthy? I mean, it's not, just, it, it's not just cornmeal mash or something. Your chicken feed has, like, 12 ingredients in it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I do, uh, full disclosure, I do use commercial chicken feed. Um, Mainly, you know, I'm busy and I travel a lot. Mixing your own does take a little bit of effort, and it probably is not as inexpensive unless you have a really great local mill that you can source in bulk. But Same as, you know, knowing what your food is eating and and what your your animals and all that are eating. You know, when you're mixing your own, you know exactly what's going into it. It does have to be balanced. You can't just go out and buy a bunch of grains and mix them together and toss them to your, I mean, you can. But for, you know, optimal laying and optimal health and that, it really does need to be balanced because they're laying eggs. That takes a lot of energy out of them, a lot of nutrients out of them. So more than other types of animals, I think, chicken feed is really important that it's balanced. So I do offer a pretty detailed recipe on how to mix your own. But I think a better idea, especially for beginners, is to mix um, what we call scratch grains, which are basically a treat. So that doesn't have to be as balanced. And you really can just go out and grab a handful of this, a handful of that, mix it together and throw it to your chicken. Because it's not their main diet. It's just a kind of supplemental treat to their diet.
0: Right, so there, uh, that's one thing I wanted to cover. There are a lot of different elements of feeding chickens. It's not just the, the main feed, but as you say, you've also got this chicken scratch that, and then I guess that relieves boredom too, because that's all different and they have to like dig it up off the ground. And, and there's also this mysterious thing that people who don't have chickens like me do not understand, which is grit.
3: Right. So, yes, yeah, so a so good point. So chickens need layer feed, whether you mix your own or buy commercial. Then the scratch grains are basically a treat, mostly in the winter, and, and to keep them from getting bored. Um, the grains are high energy and it keeps them warm. So then you've got your grit, which basically is dirt. Grandma's chickens did not eat commercial grit. They just walked around and they picked up stones as they were roaming around. So if you're letting your chickens out for even a part of the day, they'll, they'll likely pick up, the stones that they need. Uh, we have a dirt driveway, so when I let the chickens out, they run over to the driveway and they start eating rocks, which alarms people. <laughs> but they need that. <laughs> they don't. Chickens don't have teeth, so they those little stones that they keep in their crop, which is basically like a gullet or a gizzard. That's what grinds up the food that they eat since they don't have teeth. So if you see your chickens eating little stones, do not be alarmed. They do need that.
0: So. You, a lot of your food recipes your feed recipes one of the things you'll say in parentheses is this is really good to make really golden yellow uh yolks um in your egg and i, I was talking with my friend diane she uh visited india and pakistan and all those remote places when she was younger and she can remember being served eggs that had no color it was almost, you know, it was almost all white. And so it, it just emphasized to me how much the nutrition that the chicken gets, because they were in a very poor area, there wasn't a lot of good food for the chickens, results in a really distinctly healthful eggs. You can probably look at an egg once it's cracked open and tell how well that chicken was cared for, right? Well, Yeah,
3: exactly how well that chicken eats. That's true. A lot of people think that fresh eggs, have orange yolks, but it really is the chicken's diet. The things that she's eating are translating directly into that egg yolk, you know, for the color and a little bit for the taste, too, you know, not specific foods, but the, the overall diet will make a, a tastier egg.
0: Now, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I know you use herbs, you use fruits, you use all kind of hippie stuff to keep your chickens <laughs> amused. Can you actually affect the taste of an egg by um, feeding a chicken, say, an abundance of a certain herb, something like that?
3: No, unfortunately. I, I don't believe you can. Because I'm seeing chicken, this. I, <laughs> we're going into business
0: together. We're like vanilla-scented <laughs> eggs, tarragon <laughs> eggs, rosemary eggs, you know?
3: Wouldn't that be awesome? I wish. I really wish you could. I. I I truly don't believe you can because, um, you know, I do feed my chickens a lot of herbs. I feed them a lot of garlic, and I don't taste that in the egg, unfortunately, because I think garlic eggs would be really great. That
0: would be fabulous, but, you know, yeah. I'll grow yeah, the garlic, you grow the eggs. <laughs> now, one thing that fascinated a lot of things fascinated me as I went through your book. I, like I said, I want to I move into your coop. These chickens live better than I do. Um, is uh you encourage people to ferment some or all of their feed?
3: Sure. Yeah, I mean if you again, you know, I travel a lot and I'm busy and I don't always have the time, but fermenting feed um, if you know anything about fermenting making, you know, uh whether it's uh, uh not not coleslaw but the other sauerkraut Um, sauerkraut or uh, anything that you're doing a fermenting of, it creates probiotics, it creates a lot of nutrients, so it's super, super healthy for your chickens. They're going to love it. You'll actually go through less feed because they're getting the nutrition they need in a lesser amount of food. Um, So, fermenting feed is a a really great, great thing to do if you do have the time to do it, and you can feed it as their, their sole feed.
0: Now, you live in Maine, so you have extremely cold winters, um, and, and yet a lot of the cute little tricks in your book are about keeping chickens cool um, during the summer. You make these little ice water treats. The, the last photo in the book, we'll show it to the people on TV put it up on the website the last photo in the book has these chickens gathered around what looks like a dish you could take to a picnic on a hot day and and people would gather around it I mean these chickens are so spoiled and there's ice cubes floating in there I mean what a good mom well thank you well it is it's a fun book whether you want to raise chickens or you just want to see? Is that I didn't see the tutu photo in here. Did, are we missing out on that? Do we do we need uh, an addendum? There's,
3: <laughs> there's a little one in the back, and then on page 172, you have Violet on um, kind of in all of her full glory, just trotting across the yard in her tutu.
0: Oh my goodness! Um, we'll we'll put this up in a better way. <laughs> I still haven't learned how to be on television, but there's, there's Violet. I'm sorry if you're listening to us on the radio. You've got to go to the website. We will, we will put Violet up in all her chickeny glory, dressed for Halloween or to go out for a night on the town. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you love animals, you'll love this book. Lisa Steele is the author. The book is 101 Chicken Keeping Hacks from Fresh Eggs Daily, which is the name of your business. Tips, tricks, and ideas for you and your hens. It's from Voyage Press.
3: Voyage, that's right.
0: Thanks so much for being on You Bet Your Garden. I am your host, Mike McGrath. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, answering a number of questions about tomato troubles that occurred this past summer. If you didn't get good tomatoes, don't worry, it probably wasn't your fault. We'll get to that after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. At 1-833-727-9588, Jeremiah, welcome to You Bet Your Garden.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being had, Jeremiah. Where are you, sir? I'm in Clarksville, Tennessee, right next to Fort Campbell Military Base. Okay, very good. Now, you sound familiar. Uh, Did we speak before? Yes, sir. Actually, it was uh, October or November
1: of uh, 2014. I fourteen. I'd called to ask you if you were familiar with the Wild American Strawberry Bush, which was something I'd found hunting years ago, and I used to enjoy looking at it because it had those big, bright orange spiked balls on it with the red berries inside of it, and you researched it, and you had me on your program, and... um you were able to give me some more information
0: about it yeah you you really sent me down the rabbit hole though that was a tough one <laughs> all right well, What uh, what can we do for you today jeremiah well
1: <clears throat> what did uh my uh, dog Sid? uh i lost her two months ago she died and i had her buried in uh She was the best friend I ever had. I had her for 11 years, and I had her nice headstone made and a little cedar decorative fence put around her grave, and I want to plant some tulips on her grave. And I've got the tulip bulbs, and my questions are, is it too late in the year to plant those bulbs for this climate in Tennessee? And if not, uh, what about the soil? What kind of soil do I need to add to her grave site for the tulips to do well?
0: Well, first of all, we have to offer you condolences. Uh, I know I used to be a rescue home for Great Pyrenees, and mm. my my big gentle giants both lived to be 11, which is unusual for dogs that weigh 150 pounds. Oh. Um, but they, they grow on you, and it's, 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 yeah. it's a great loss. And this is a wonderful idea. Um, now, uh, are you, first of all, devoted totally to tulips, which attract, which attract a lot of attention. Deer love them. Squirrels love them. Oh, is that right? Rabbits okay. love them. Um, whereby daffodils, which are very bright and just light up the area in the springtime. To me, daffodils are more of a symbol of rebirth than tulips. Okay. And daffodils okay. are easy care. The bulbs are actually slightly toxic. So evil um, squirrels don't try to steal them, and uh, deer don't eat the flowers. That you, don't, okay. you don't have to do anything to protect them, and okay. I, I think it makes a nicer tribute.
1: Okay, well, that's a good idea. Actually, now, when, when should I um, get the seed for them and try to plant them?
0: In the fall, the spring, or...? Oh, definitely in the fall. Uh, we call them spring bulbs, and that confuses oh. a lot of people, but they're okay. always planted in the fall you'll buy you'll buy bulbs that look a little bit like onions and Mm -hmm. you'll plant those in in your climate you'll plant those about four inches deep that is there's four inches of soil on top of them okay um and the ideal time to plant spring bulbs is in between halloween and thanksgiving
1: is that right oh that'd be perfect for me then your timing
0: is absolutely perfect and daffodils require less care um, than some of the other spring bulbs. They are very okay. hardy and easy to grow, and they should naturalize for you. In instead of you getting fewer flowers in the future, you should get more and more as the bulbs oh, split that'd be and separate. Great.
1: That'd be great. there's actually nothing growing on the ground there around her gravesite. It's just covered with acorns and black walnuts. <laughs> so I wanted to pretty it up a little bit and um I had I, I made the uh, decorative cedar fence to go around it and even though I'm blind I do a lot of woodwork and um so it it, it it's visually I'm told it looks good with the headstone and that cedar fence around it, now I want some flowers growing and all on it for her. and uh that's a, that's a good that's a good idea I appreciate
0: that thank you thank you so much Jeremiah okay you you have a great season and I can't wait uh, can't wait till your daffodils come up. Thank
1: you, brother. I appreciate it. God bless y'all.
0: Oh, God bless you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, once again, our phone number is 833-727-9588. You really can call that number anytime to get on the show like Michael. Michael, welcome to You Bet Your Garden.
2: Hey there, happy to be here.
0: I'm happy to have you here, Michael. Where are you?
2: I am in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: What can we do you for?
2: Now my question is So, my wife, my amazing, beautiful, wonderful wife uh, of three years, has, she's a chef and a baker and a candlestick maker <laughs> um, and does all kinds of things. And one of the things is we moved from Manhattan, New York City, to Nashville, Tennessee, and she created a beautiful vegetable garden. She makes tomatoes, all kinds of stuff, and um, and I was wondering if there's any tr- tricks or tips that you could share about, I don't know, how to maximize all the wonderful bounty that we're getting out of this rich soil here in Nashville.
0: Okay, so how long have you been growing tomatoes in this dedicated bed?
2: This will be the third. This was the third season.
0: Oh man, you are call. You got the luck of the Irish on your side, man. Um, that bed is about to become unproductive for tomatoes for a couple of years there's a there's a weird situation with tomatoes and it's supposed to affect other plants but I've only seen uh, the phenomena with tomatoes um, is a symbiotic relationship with soil dwelling organisms that are prevalent all over the country Uh, the first year you grow a tomato in one specific spot Nothing bad happens, but the soil-dwelling organism is attracted to the root system and starts to kind of breed there, for lack of a better word. Second year, you grow tomatoes in that exact same spot. The organism gets denser, stronger, more of it. You may start to notice some yellowing of the bottom leaves of the tomato plants in there.
2: We did.
0: Third year... Now, the verticillium wilt, you could even have fusarium wilt. You could even have both races, so to speak, where you are in Nashville, Uh, but it doesn't matter. The symptoms are the same. The third year, that yellowing always starts at the bottom of the plant, is gonna move up the plant faster. um, And it's gonna take out the bottom leaves. By year four, typically the tomato plants are dead by July. So you're calling, yeah, you're calling at exactly the right time because I'm giving you good news and bad news. Okay. The good news is you're going to have to build a new raised bed for tomatoes where they'll grow for the next two or three years. Um, The good news is that you know this now and you're not going to waste next year and have nothing but dead plants to show in August.
2: That's a great point. I would never in a million years have suspected that that was coming. All right, Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Hey, listen, I'm just such a fan. Thank you. I'm charmed that you even took my call, and I'm really glad to have been on the show. Thank you so much for the advice.
0: Hey, thank you for making that call. We appreciate it, too. Good luck, sir. Great. Thank you. All right, cats and kittens, as promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we are calling What the Heck Happened to My Tomatoes This Year? Ann in Tacoma Park, Maryland writes, Mike, can you tell me why all of our tomatoes split open just as they ripened up this year? I say it's from the tremendous amount of rain we had, but my husband disagrees. What do you think? Thanks. Well, Ann, I think that you must have thought this would be the first time in history that the husband was right. Come on. Sheesh. Of course you're correct ginormous amounts of rain will cause most varieties to split. The fruit simply fills up with more water than the skin can contain. You want to pick those split fruits right away and use them to make tomato sauce so they don't go to waste. In the future, read catalog descriptions carefully and choose some of your varieties that are said to, quote, resist cracking and splitting. These tomato varieties are bred to have thicker skins. As am I. We move on to Rosalind, who writes, Hi, Mike. I recently moved from Connecticut to Carnation, Washington, which is 40 miles outside of Seattle, west of the Cascades. I follow all your advice and grew tomatoes successfully in Connecticut for over 10 years. But the prevailing consensus out here is that you can't grow tomatoes except in a greenhouse because of all the rain. Funny thing is, Connecticut got more rain and is much more humid than this part of Washington State. Anyway, I believe my tomatoes have a disease known as septoria. I've constructed raised beds filled with topsoil, perlite, and compost, plus two inches of compost on top. I water deeply and only with drip irrigation, feed with Espoma's tomato tone, and space the plants far apart. I waited until it warmed up in June to put my homegrown seedlings out. I'm mostly growing varieties that are recommended for this area by local seed companies, early beef steaks and cherry tomatoes. This is the first year I'm growing anything in these beds, let alone tomatoes. So So how did I get this blight, or am I just paranoid? I'm getting yellow leaves starting at the bottom of the plants and working up, then brown spots surrounded by yellow. I'm removing this colored I'm removing the discolored leaves as soon as possible but sure seem to be removing a lot of them. As I write to you in August the fruit is setting but not as much as I'm used to. I'm enclosing some pictures. Is there anything I can do? I love my tomatoes and devote half my garden beds to them, which I've been told is totally not a Pacific Northwest gardening thing. Well, Rosalind, after a careful look at your photos, I see no sign of blight, which is good because true blight, meaning the same pathogen that caused the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1860s, is a nasty actor. It's also hard to mistake. Blight causes the leaves of your tomatoes and the fruits to develop greasy round spots. Then the whole plant quickly turns dead and black and dead. It's hard to confuse with lesser ailments, which is why people use the biblical term blight to describe it. Anyhow, your symptoms do sound like one of the soil-borne wilts that strike tomatoes that have grown in the same place several years in a row. I'd suggest that maybe tomatoes grew there before you entered the picture, but more than likely it was just too bad word wet this summer. And, more importantly, you say your tomatoes are spaced far apart. Your photos show that your plants are more crowded than a Japanese subway car at rush hour on a Friday. I sent this to Rosalind, and she responded, I'm so glad it isn't blight. I've always followed the seed packet directions of spacing for my tomato seedlings. But I took a look at your recommendations and you recommend at least a foot between mature plants. Does that mean a four-foot seedling space on center in rows next time? It would be good to plan better so they don't have to move or rip out mature plants. Well, honest answers are always going to take local conditions into account. You're in a situation where excessive moisture and lack of sun and heat are always going to be an issue. So more space between plants will always equal better results. Now, my basic plan that involves caging the tomatoes inside a two-foot footprint and then ensuring a row of airflow between plants doesn't leave anything up to chance. Your plants are, instead of that, on top of each other, a death knell in your historically wet region. In regions like yours with short wet seasons, you also have to grow tomatoes with the shortest days to maturity. It's a number on every seed packet. You're looking for number 75 or lower. You must also space them further apart than normal people. Just one tomato in each raised bed, but you can surround it with flowers, herbs, and other small plants that aren't going to block the airflow. I guarantee you'll get more tomatoes from four plants using such a plan than you will from 12 plants all jammed together. Now. If you are super competent at raising fabulous starts, which are short, stocky, and vibrantly green, sure, continue to grow your own. But few gardeners are good at this. And if your starts really look like minute bowl, give it up and buy good ones at the local nursery. And finally, if your climate is honestly a bit too short and a bit too cool for proper tomato propagation, yes, invest in a little mid-season only greenhouse And your Love Apple production will double. Maybe better. Well, that sure was a CSI on Tomato Troubles 2018, now wasn't it? Luckily for yous, make that us with short attention spans. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. The question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be ubetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to fry my green tomatoes if I don't get out of this studio. You, we must be out of time. Maybe you're out of time too. I know that I'm out of time, but you can call us anytime at 1 833 PBS WLVT, which translates to 833 727 9588. Or send us your email, you're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. You'll find all this new contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show if you're a radio listener, or even if you saw it on TV already, and our Priceless podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer and suspected producer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our chief engineer is Choo Choo Charlie. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page and send her pictures of your garden. We'd love to see what you are growing. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio director. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. Tavia Minnick works the phones and lifts those bales. Regal Ron Rouchet, say it correctly now, is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jim, no fancy last name, McDonald. Affable Andy Cummings makes all Cummiss, I've called her Cummings too many times. It's Andy Cummis makes all the equipment work, despite me being behind the microphone. Still late for that meeting is our sustainable CEO, Tim Fallon. Who claims to have recently golfed a hole in one and sent me a photo of a golf ball in a hole as suspected supposed proof well i'm your host mike mcgrath and i got a photo of me taking down thanos and dr doom bringing all the dead marvel superheroes back and shaving that ridiculous mustache off the guy who plays the new superman who doesn't have the red underpants as part of his costume anymore And I will see you again on TV, on the radio, or via Pictures Vitaphone next week.